0: I think the only feasible future for humanity long-term is probably at least some sort of human technology hybrid, if not some sort of full digital self.
1: Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information, and the author of the book Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Sam McRoberts. Sam is the CEO of global SEO agency Voodoo Marketing, that's V-U-D-U, and the best-selling author of Screw the Zoo. He is the co-host of the EntrepreneurCast podcast and frequently appears in media such as Forbes, Entrepreneur, Business Insider, and many others. You can find more on Sam's work online at sammcroberts.com, and he has a great Twitter account at at sams underscore antics. You can also download his book at screwthezoo.com. In this episode, Sam shares insights on connecting the dots, being humbly curious, introducing randomness, thoughts, experiments, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Sam's great insights. Sam, it's wonderful to have you on the show.
0: Hey, Ross. Thanks for having me.
1: So I think it's fair to say you uh, live your life uh, in an
0: ocean of information. That's a gentle way to put it, right? I mean, all of us, we're surrounded by massive, massive amounts of information. We only get the tiniest sliver of it. We're each trying to you know, make sense of that in our minds. We never get the exact same sliver. Everybody's attempting to connect and overlap without knowing actually what's in anybody else's head. It's uh, quite an adventure. So how do you get
1: your particular sliver?
0: By dipping my toes in lots of different pools, I guess. I would say I use Twitter primarily for fishing out interesting topics and then chasing Mm -hmm. down rabbit holes as stuff catches my interest. I was
1: trying to get a consistent ocean metaphor, but now we've got rabbit holes in there as well.
0: Sure. I mean, let's see. (laughs) I guess rabbit holes can fill with
1: rainwater. (laughs) So, all right, let's start with Twitter. You know, that's the way we we connected. Uh, You know, just we were reflecting that back in the old days, it was one of the best possible ways to connect to interesting people. And think a little bit less these days, but it's, it's how you go about it. So how do you find wonder and delight and good things in uh, the sort of the fairly mixed waters that, that is Twitter?
0: Trial and error. More, more error, I think, than trial. I look for people who are talking about things that catch my interest. And I have pretty broad ranging interests. So I will... Start by following a handful of people who are interesting. I'll keep an eye on their tweets for a while to see what they talk about, who else they connect with, and then I'll decide whether to keep following them or you know, keep them in my mainstream or maybe move them to a list if they only focus on a really narrow topic or unfollow if it's not as interesting as I hoped it would be. But so far, it works pretty well.
1: So how big is your main list and what other lists do you have? Do you have very focused topic lists as well as your main list?
0: Because I grew up as kind of like a child of the 80s and 90s who was really interested in hacking, I limit my followers, the number of people I follow to (laughs) 1,337. So that is my, my main pool. And then I have probably 15 or 20 other lists for different topics. It could be crypto, it could be AI, it could be futurism, it could be finance, humor, whatever it is.
1: So, do you scan those lists daily, or just delve in and out, or you just uh, do you have particular times a day? Do you play around in these spaces?
0: I'm on Twitter probably way too much. I jump in and out of those lists depending on my mood. I have only a couple that I check daily, and then my main feed is where I spend most of my time so So, what do
1: you do with that? i mean do are you you're taking notes. You're just building things in your mind. You—is there any thesis that you're trying to build? Is there, you know, what what is the ways in which these feed your mental models and your ideas?
0: I would say I mostly take notes in my mind. I guess I operate under the assumption that if it's actually important to me, it will stick, and that tends to be the case. I like to just keep my options open and be open to serendipity so i'm reading along and something catches my interest maybe it's about a topic i'm i'm reading on or maybe it's something that i just find interesting and so maybe i'll spend a few days like going down that that rabbit hole but what i what i most look for in twitter are three things so one is other people who are curious And who are humbly curious. Like they really want to know what's true and they're willing to poke and prod and dig and change their mind to get there. Two technologies, new things that I'm not aware of that could be cool, maybe now, maybe down the road. And then new sources of information, whether it's an article or a book or a podcast or a video, you know, whatever it is. Like I'm looking for people to expose me to things that I've never been exposed to and might not have had I not encountered them.
1: So serendipity is a topic dear to my heart is, I mean, you've already described it in a way, but are there any other things which you think facilitate for you that serendipity that, you know, those happy accidents of finding new or relevant or interesting things for you?
0: I think not staying too stuck in a rut. So I'm willing to go poke in random places. I even do it like in real life outside of Twitter. I may take a different route one day than I would normally walk or buy something different just to try something new or try a, a different show that's completely outside of my normal sphere. Like Whatever it is, I, I try and introduce randomness because how else am I going to discover new things?
1: Alan Nureger is this wonderful scientist. He studied under B.F. Skinner. So B.F. Skinner was a person who talked about stimulus response, you know, we're all just sort of a subject to our, we have patterns of behavior, which are built into us because of all the, you know, the response we have. So Alan was a student of P.F. Skinner at Harvard, but he came up with this thesis and said, well, if we can reinforce consistent behavior, perhaps we can reinforce inconsistent behavior, variable behavior. So he came up with this phrase, variability is an operant, where he basically proposed and he experimented himself throughout his life to say that he could actually build up himself to have more or more variable responses by giving that positive rewards. So that's something which we can all try to do for ourselves.
0: Have you ever heard of Randonautica? No. Randonautica, it's a site and an app that uses a quantum random number generator with a geographic constraint to give you Ooh. a location within your vicinity based on the radius you provide, completely random, and so you you can use that and you can be like, all right, like pick me a random place, and it'll put a pin on your map, and you go there and see what's there. But like I love things like that. I love that sort of randomness and getting outside of your normal bubble. Fascinating.
1: Yeah, well, actually, Alan Nurnberger, he. Uh, Trained himself to be able to create random numbers, which which was supposed to be impossible. But <laughs> he used he used the computer to give him feedback to be able to actually generate <laughs> generate random numbers.
0: Wild. Uh,
1: so maybe we could do the same with our behaviors, as in our paths to get to where we're going or wherever. But yeah. I love that. So you, so this goes back to the Dice Man. Have you read that?
0: I have not. What's the Dice Man?
1: Oh, that that's kind of it's 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 kind of old culture. It's eighties book. And by Luke Reinhardt. And anyway, it's just this, it was very popular at the time. It was a story where basically this guy, very normal guy, suddenly came up with this thing where he threw dice to decide what he was going to do. And he just started leading this absolutely crazed life because he just followed the dice. I like started, that. You know, set off, set off this cultural <laughs> phenomenon.
0: That's funny. Okay, I'm going to read that. <laughs> And it's, it's
1: interesting just to come back to that. I mean, you know, that our conversation has unearthed that because we do live very, you know, for, I mean, in a way, the chaos is around, all around us. You know, we live in a world of chaos as never before. And, but the individuals within it are significantly predictable. I mean, even various politicians, which seem to be, you would have said they're unpredictable, but in fact, they are very predictable, you know, once you, once you establish their patterns. You know, you can predict what, you know, various famous politicians will do, even if they may have not do what politicians of the past did. And so, you know, we get a lot of very consistent behaviors, which are creating more chaotic environments. And I just wonder, you know, how how is it, should we behave in this chaotic environment? Should we be more predictable or less predictable and just- uh, and I think and uh, just I suppose that from the information perspectives, the less predictable means that we have more information, more diverse information, richer mental models, better ways of thinking.
0: I agree with that. I think predictability is interesting. I think if you understand somebody's incentives deeply enough, you can predict to a degree. But there's also always the element of unexpected randomness. You know, somebody who's acting out of character or they don't know what, what came over them. There, There's always elements of potential randomness and you just never know when they're going to hit. So, fun.
1: Yeah, well, famously, a lot of the uh, most successful people on Wall Street are bipolar, and you know, I suppose they, they are have a high degree of unpredictability, which in some ways have served them well, or at least financially.
0: I, finance is actually probably a very good place to be unpredictable, because really it is yes. unpredictable. Nobody is accurately predicting the market. You're getting lucky in different ways at different times. And you know, if you are sufficiently lucky or consistent over time, you may have some sort of an edge. But like Warren Buffett's a good example. You know, he's very, very consistent over time, yes. and it's it's more the amount of time than it is his luck or anything else that's at play. So yeah, I think if you can just be reasonable for long enough, you'll be fine.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, you you need a, just a decent, uh, you know, a fractionally better than. Well, in fact, you only need to actually mark a track, to be frank. I mean, I'm not, I mean you know, you, you ride the market and you have a, hopefully, you're a slightly better than average thesis or, you know, you don't make the mistakes and that takes you a, a long way. That's one way in which inconsistency is, is definitely good. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So in terms of pulling all this together. So, I mean, that's part of the thing is it's, you know, it's wonderful to have diverse perspectives, have lots of different uh, information, ideas, and find things which you wouldn't find. But part of the thing is, okay, well, how do we pull all this together into, I suppose, some kind of a cogent and useful mental model of the world? Because that's one of the things is the more diverse your perspectives, the harder it is to pull it together into something which, you know, has some degree of internal consistency in the way that we see the world. So how do, how do you synthesize or pull together uh, all of your disparate sources?
0: Honestly, I think it's more it's more random than structured. As I learn things, I see what sticks. And in, in my mind, I, I think of it all from the perspective of nodes, like I know that the way we store information in our minds is in clusters across different sensory pieces, and it's interesting how things that seem unconnected at a first glance may actually, in fact, be connected. I mean, you may be looking in finance, and you find something that's related to psychology, or you may be looking in psychology, and you actually come across something that's related to physics. And I think everything is connected it just depends on the path that you you get there and the the waiting but in terms of consistently I I'm, I'm just I'm trying to find things that fit what I can observe that are wherever possible reproducible and consistent but I also really have a a bent for things that are outside of the norms like I like stuff that maybe is uncertain or non-standard but still fits. Oh, what would be a good example? Non-duality research into consciousness, um, nature of reality, like things where we have we have guesses and we have some pieces of information, but it's still tremendously uncertain. I, I like those domains.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the I always, you know, I think it's marvelous if we look at the you know the the microscopic or the macroscopic. I mean, our physics is. We have extraordinary degrees of knowledge, but we start to look inside our brains, and it's uh, we're uh, only just scratching the surface of what it is we know. But we do have plenty of data. There's a lot of starting points for data in which we can start to, yeah, you know, you know, use our imaginations in a way, and that that's part of extending what are, what are the hypotheses around how our brain works, and you know, what is the nature of mind. And that's you know that's fun playing fields because you know you you can't read it all in a textbook or at least there's only there's only sort of a, at a high level elementary views of that, but that's something where you can start to connect dots in useful and novel ways fairly readily because we are just beginning to do that.
0: I'm always amazed for how much information we've discovered how much there still is that we don't know even as close as our own brains. I mean, it was only a decade ago, not even a decade ago, that we found that the brain has a lymphatic system. Like how, how wild. We're still discovering things inside ourselves now, despite all our advances in technology. And there's probably mountains more to figure out. The microbiome is still largely not understood. Uh, protein folding is still, you know, so much more advances to make. Like it, it's mind-blowing how much we know and yet how little that still is.
1: So would you say that there are any practices or things which help you to be better at connecting those dots? Is it just the way you were born or you're educated or the way you've made yourself or is there anything which you do which you find helps you make uh, some of those connections more jump out?
0: I'm not sure if I do anything in particular. I mean, I was born... I assume very curious. From the I, I've heard stories from when I was two, two and a half. I was very much the same then and as I am now. I question everything. I wanted to understand how things work. I annoyed the shit out of my parents because I was always what why is that? No, that's stupid. I don't want to do that. I think if I do anything, it's just deliberately reading a variety of things, like exposing myself to different ideas so there's a chance for those connections to form. If I don't have enough variety, like who knows what I'm gonna miss? but it's hard cuz i can only read so much my my to be read pile expands far faster than i can read them what formats do you read mostly kindle since i am a digital nomad i can't really haul around a bunch of books so digital is my my go to but i love that i can very easily highlight stuff and then export highlights
1: so where do you uh, export your kindle highlights to
0: usually i'll pull them out just like into a notepad like i like having i like doing stuff old school in notepad I've played around a bit with Rome, uh, not very advanced. It hasn't really like caught me yet. It's interesting, but I don't love it yet. Maybe I'll, someone will convince me to to dig deeper eventually.
1: So, is it, so is that just playing with the ideas, or is there something you're trying to build with those? Uh, I mean, are you working on any projects, idea, projects or thought projects where you're driving your particular types of research, or reading or thinking?
0: I like the thesis of building a second brain that Tiago Forte has has talked about. Like that's an interesting idea because I mean very much our phones, I think, have become sort of an extension of our minds. And I like the idea of building a wiki of the things that you know and how they connect together and trying to make that mirror the way those connections appear to you in your own mind. But I think I'm vastly too lazy to actually build that out. To the degree of fidelity that would be useful, and so I dabble. But
1: but I mean, you, you're I mean you describe this as the, the the nodes and the connecting the dots. So implicitly uh, you know a network structure of. Yes. ideas and then teasing out what those connections are.
0: And I think about that, like I think of my mind in terms of those nodes and I try and get to like, what do I think the most significant nodes are? How Which ones do I think connect the most? But actually like getting that out into another format, haven't been able to make myself do it sufficiently.
1: Well, that is a, a project which I'm working on is to trying to do something which does make that process a little bit easier. Because I think the Rome researchers and obsidians and LogSex and so on of this world are a little bit for the Uber geeks, and I think the the similar uh, capabilities or these ways of being able to manifest a network thinking for um, you know a broader audience would have you know and have some potential.
0: Agreed. I think I'm still holding out for the brain computer interface feature, where you know just plug me in run me through a, a program that learns like the language of my mind and then download it all for me. Maybe it won't be too, too far in the future.
1: So will you be an early adopter for the uh, invasive uh, neural interface?
0: Not going to be a beta tester, but I think once it's <laughs> reasonably safe, I don't see why not. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think I think the only feasible future for humanity long-term is probably at least some sort of human technology hybrid, if not... Some sort of full digital self. I just I don't see how we can not only survive long term, but actually spread out and explore the universe when we're piloting these fragile meat suits.
1: Yeah. Well, the interface. You know, our brains are extraordinary, but the interface between our brains and the external world is rudimentary. You know, our primary interfaces are language, which is good. Our language is a pretty decent tool. But uh, there's a, a lot more that we can do, I think. You know, la- language is linear, and our brains are not. That's one of the things which pulls me towards visual representations, is that visuals start to be able to give us representations that are, yes. you know, show some of the non-linearity of the world.
0: I've actually written a blog post about that. Like, I think it's called The Words That Divide Us. But that concept of language, I mean, we use a label that has a relatively simple meaning, but there's so much more attached to the label in our minds. Like if I say one word, if I say apple, you know, you might picture a specific variety of an apple or an apple pie or bobbing for apples at Halloween or an apple orchard. Like you, And then you have smells and tastes and all these things connected to that word. But all of that cloud of things that are tied to the word are different. For everybody and the emotions a word triggers may be different for everybody and so we you know language is at best a very lossy map but it's so far from the territory that it's i, I so yeah it's gotten us very far but it's still just maybe a bootloader
1: so so you started talking about the slivers of you know slivers of you know perception and i suppose the different you know frames that we build out of that so what are some ways that we can start to transcend that or to, to marry or mesh or to correlate the different you know, slivers or frames that we have on, on reality?
0: I think we get maybe as close as we can in the realm of philosophy, where you have to sit down and very carefully hash out terms and frames and meaning when you have a discussion so that you're all on the same page. Technologically, I don't think we're terribly far out from being able to read emotions and imagery and things from the brain. And so I I think it may be possible in the not-too-distant future when you speak to also share an emotional channel with the person you're speaking to so they, they can feel more of what you're saying and not just hear the word and interpret it through their frame. That would get us closer. I also have really high hopes for whatever the metaverse ends up being. I hope that being in an immersive, interactive, visual environment where we have much more control over all of the elements will allow us to do a broader and deeper method of conveying experiences. So instead of just telling somebody about an experience, maybe you can rebuild it. What we're seeing now, I think, with in the realm of machine learning, with large language models and image generators like Dolly, I think are precursors to being able to maybe describe to an AI an experience we had and then adjust it and let it generate you know, a full sensory experience. I don't know how close we are. I think we'll probably have the ability to give a description and get a visual and auditory Output within the next three to five years, but who knows? Maybe within the next ten to twenty, we'll be able to build something even more immersive, and then we can tell when we tell our story, we can show our story, and feel our story, and hear our story.
1: I think that's that's very that's very feasible. There, there has been some some really interesting research using uh, machine learning on. Uh, FMRI scans where you have actually been able to represent visually what people are thinking about, you know, in terms of you know, essentially portray tra- train them on a whole series of images so that you can yep. actually th- people think of things and you can actually see it on a screen, which is uh, pretty phenomenal. So given we're already at that level, then you could imagine you know getting closer to where you can think things in your brain, and that scene is evoked in a yeah. 3D virtual world. Yeah, I mean, people to also inhabit.
0: and as cool as fMRI is, it's still very, very low fidelity. I mean, what we're capturing yeah. is across like a large neuronal space. It's not pinpoint precision, which is why I'm so hopeful for brain computer interfaces or whatever we end up using. I mean, maybe it won't be invasive surgery. Maybe it'll end up being nanobots of some kind. But that ability to get very, very precise and then to do that training and to be able to really get down there and see ah like this part of this neuron fires when you think of this image that'll be amazing
1: yeah yeah well we've got to we got a got a better way to go but uh we're, we're definitely on that journey
0: i'm hoping ai helps to speed us up
1: i mean yeah essentially for me for me this is the idea of how how is it that we evolve our cognition and part of it is being able to just be better at what humans do and i think we can definitely lots of we can do on that front but given we've got these nice, handy, uh, pretty pretty nifty AI tools, we can work out, well, how do they can they complement us as best possible? And that's uh, a big part of the next decades and beyond. Very much. So pulling back to just this thriving on overload. So I'd, I'd say that's a pretty fair description of what you do. You're in overload, you... Th- you want it, you lap it up, you, you probably look for look and for, expose yourself more than most people and, uh, and you thrive on it. So what are some tips? What are some recommendations? What are some things you would suggest to people that want to uh, prosper in, in this world where there's so much of value, but also so much which is uh, not so valuable?
0: I think one of the most important things you can do is to get outside of your swim lane. I mean, everything about our education and working system is designed to move you into a narrower and narrower lane so that your, your function and use to the whole is very precise. And so there's a tendency to narrow your filters instead of expanding them. I think the best thing you can do is deliberately go the other way. Try a lot of different things. Experiment. Don't, don't get yourself stuck in a rut read things you wouldn't normally read, listen to people you wouldn't normally listen to, maybe deliberately go after things that are counter or that make you feel angry or frustrated. Like if you have a particular stance, seek out the opposite stance so that you understand more than one side of an issue. Try and put yourself in someone else's mind. Like what would I need to believe in order for what they believe to be true? Like do do thought experiments, poke at things. I think more than anything is just to be open to whatever's true and assume that everything you think is true is probably not. Maybe it's, you know, at one end of the truth-leaning spectrum or not. But, you know, all, what, what's the saying? Uh, all models are false, but some are useful. So I think understanding yes. that you don't know anything, you just have a lot of faulty models that are more or less useful depending on what circumstance you find yourself in.
1: That's fantastic. I think it's really sound advice. I think so what what, uh, you or I can do when we've got the transcript of this is just distill out of what you've just said, a set of aphorisms which will uh, give some guidance to people. I think that's that's great. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sam. Really appreciate your time. It's been a, a very fun conversation.
0: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening.